Mighty most deaf. It's simple mathematics. Check it out. I'll revolve around science. What are we talking about here? What's up, Duke Nation? Welcome back to Duke by the Numbers. I'm your host, Russell, a.k.a. Duke Better on Twitter. Gang. (laughs) Oh, you know, (laughs) sometimes this is fun. Sometimes talking about Duke basketball is fun. I didn't even prepare uh, today. I don't have my normal uh, sort of detailed outline that I usually bring into these podcasts because there's really not much to say. There's not a lot of interesting analysis to do. I, we just sort of beat the hell out of them, right? I mean, like, just top to bottom, there's not a lot to learn that we didn't know already. I mean, I I talked about last time on this show that I didn't think they had matchups for us. I, I just didn't think it should be even really that close. Obviously, I like that Coach K did try my Bates Jones suggestion. <laughs> Obviously, it didn't it didn't quite work out, but we were thinking the right way in terms of just trying to take Armando Baycott completely out of the game. Certainly helps that he got those two fouls right away. Uh, but even when he came back in, he was not effective. Uh, I don't have a lot of super original insight here, other than Duke is just clearly a much more talented, much better coached, and just much better team than UNC at this point in the year. I like will be probably double digit favorites in the game at Cameron. I you know there's <laughs> it's 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 not even that interesting honestly. There are more interesting games going forward in terms of matchups in terms of teams that could maybe uh use their specific rosters to try to exploit some of our weaknesses. UNC just doesn't really have any of that. Uh, so <laughs> that's great for us. <laughs> I saw a lot of people uh, online being like, it wasn't even that good a game. Wrong, dude. Wrong. <laughs> it was a great game. I love nothing more than watching a Duke-UNC game with a total Cheshire Cat grin across my face, not clutching my chest like I'm going to have a coronary, which is normally what's happening. So, uh, you know, <laughs> your boy's pretty happy. Your boy's also pretty tired. We uh, partied late into the night last night. So, again, maybe going without a detailed outline is not the smartest thing. Uh, but that's okay. I wanted to talk today a little bit about the Duke game, just a little bit more. Uh, and then I wanted to do a mailbag. I put out on Twitter, uh, on my Twitter account, at Duke Better. Uh, I asked for questions. Uh, a few of you asked questions. Thank you for that. Uh, and so I'm going to touch on a few of those just to give us a few more things to talk about before this upcoming slate of two games, uh, the home game versus Virginia and then at Clemson. So the magic numbers for this episode are 64.3, negative 0.8, and 5. Uh, let's start with 64.3. That <laughs> That's the win probability that Ken Palm gave us before the game started. And coincidentally... Uh, 64.3 was also the lowest that our win probability was at any point during the course of the game. So (laughs) if you go to Ken Palm, you can see the win probability shift with each basket, but it never got lower than 64.3. So that means that UNC's best chance to win the game came before the game started. (laughs) 
which I think is great. <laughs> That's just so awesome. We beat them so badly that they never had a better chance at beating us than if the game just hadn't happened. That was their best chance. Um, so yeah, I mean, again, that just, that speaks to a lot of the, uh, the talent differential, the roster, uh, problems that they have probably some of their chemistry issues as well. Uh, obviously they had some bo- bad body language down the stretch of that game, but yeah, I, I love that number 64.3. That's great. Uh, rest assured that when we play in Cameron, uh, the number will be higher to start the game for us. Uh, the second number is negative 0.8. That was Paolo's box plus minus in the game, according to basketballreference.com. So I spoke about last time they had no answer for Paolo. And I guess I should have revised that because there was an answer for Paolo in the sense that they could put all of their defensive pressure on Paolo and then just let everyone else do whatever the hell they wanted. Uh, I didn't really expect that to happen. Um, I think I did address on the episode that if Leaky Black was guarding Paolo, I had no idea who was going to guard AJ, uh, which we saw. The answer to that was nobody. Um, <laughs> uh, like, I, I just, I, I'm still pretty baffled by the decision by Huber Davis to start with Baycott on Paolo. It got Baycott two immediate fouls. I mean, really, that probably cost them any chance they had in the game in the first immediate two minutes. Two fouls for Baycott right away. Five points for Paolo right away. Then they put Leaky Black on him, which was the right choice. And and let's give Leaky Black credit. Uh, I thought he did a really good job, uh, you know, just being really disruptive, um, trying to prevent Paolo from getting clean position, just reaching his arms around, trying to poke the ball out best he could, swiping at him. Uh, I, I think that some of the defense that he was playing will probably get called as fouls in Cameron Indoor Stadium. Um, but at home, I didn't really have any issue with with the non-fouls there. I just thought that he did a, a, a rather good job against a guy that's a lot bigger than him. And I do think that Paolo probably has to try to get position uh, further down low. I think that Duke has to do a better job running sets in which he's starting in better position down low. But Leakey was definitely doing everything he could to keep Paolo from uh, maintaining position or, or achieving the position that he wanted in the post. So fair enough. Let's give Leakey credit for that. But then beyond that, there's just they had nothing for AJ once you did that. You had Brady Manic on AJ. You had like Baycott on like sort of AJ and sometimes Wendell Moore at times. Uh, just really weird stuff going on. Uh, they just, again, their roster makes no sense in terms of how to stop us. And that was on full display. I, I don't think that Paolo will go, uh, will have our worst uh, plus minus in the next game against UNC. I know that he's been having a little bit of efficiency problems, certainly maybe a, a couple more turnovers than he'd like, etc. cetera. Uh, he has been floating a little in the first half. We've seen this. Um, I just don't think he's going to have his game as disrupted as it was in this one uh, in the second matchup going forward because I just I don't think they can afford to put Leaky on an island with Paolo and put literally all of the attention on stopping him because Duke just has too many weapons that'll then pick everybody else apart. So uh, we didn't need Paolo to have a great game. The fact that he had a negative plus minus in a game that we won by 20 shows just how, frankly, how kind of a bad game he had for him. And yet we still won by 20. I mean, again, just uh, the differential is huge here. And that gets to my last number five. 
Uh, five is the number of realistic top 40 picks in this year's NBA draft that Duke has, right? Uh, pa- Paolo will be a top three pick. I'd kind of be surprised if he's not a top three pick. I mean, maybe if the efficiency dips, anything can happen. But let's call him a top three pick. I think A.J. Griffin is realistically a top seven pick at absolute worst. Certainly a very realistic top five pick. Uh, I think that Mark Williams uh, can go anywhere from end of lottery to maybe uh, end of the first. I think that Trevor Keels and Wendell Moore are both maybe like as high as like 20 and maybe as low as like early second round. Um, But all of them are top 40 picks. I think all of them should be sort of guaranteed NBA contract guys right away. UNC has none, right? UNC does not have anyone that qualifies as that. Uh, Baycott is not a draft pick. I don't care how good his season has been. He is not an NBA talent. Uh, He's a very good rebounder. But like Oscar Shibwe might be a, a contender for player of the year from Kentucky. He's one of the best rebounders I've ever seen. And even he might get drafted in the last like 10 picks. Like an Armando Baycott is not close to the player that Oscar Shibwe is. Like there's, it's just not an NBA for his style of game. And so he's their best player. It doesn't work for him. Their best prospect is honestly Caleb Love, just due to his positional size. But as we saw, his game is not draftable yet at this point. Like, he just can't maintain. Leaky Black is not close. Brady Manick is a very good shooter, but he can't, as I said on the live after the Twitter uh, on uh, Zion's live last night, I said he couldn't even guard a cardboard cutout of A.J. Griffin. So, like, he's not an NBA player. So... That tells you a lot about, again, when I talk about the talent difference between Duke and UNC. That should tell you a lot. We have five guys who will be NBA contract players next year if they all choose to go. And UNC doesn't realistically have any. And in fact, outside of Blake Wesley of Notre Dame, there aren't any ACC players who are safe top 45 to 50 picks in the next NBA draft. There are some interesting guys. FSU's got a couple in Cleveland and Butler. Wake has Williams and LaRavia. NC State has Sebron. But, like, none of them are really ready to go right now. They're guys that maybe have some long-term potential. They come back. Maybe they can be first-rounders. These sorts of things. Um, And we've got five of them. Five of the six. Like, if you go back and look at the ACC every year, when you look at the teams who finish at the top of the regular season standings, top three or four teams, you will almost always see at least one NBA player on those teams. Uh, not all, not always, but the vast majority of the time. And and it's usually not like somebody who made it into the NBA as like a uh, an undrafted free agent or whatever. It's usually somebody who's like a top 40, 45 pick in the NBA draft. At least one, oftentimes more than one. Duke has five of the six this year. And I don't think it's a coincidence that Notre Dame is in second with the only other guy that qualifies. So Duke should absolutely win the ACC regular season title this year. We have an absurd talent advantage. It's been on display this week at Notre Dame and at UNC. Uh, Anything other than a regular season title would be pretty ridiculous in, in my humble opinion. So let's hope that they can get the job done. Obviously, we're susceptible to laying an egg against inferior talent, as all great teams are. When you go on the road, especially, and you play a team with nothing to lose, and you think correctly that you're better than them, you open yourself up for potential defeat. I mean, we saw Auburn almost lose to Georgia this weekend, and Georgia is 
awful. So it can happen to anybody. It'll probably happen again to Duke at least once the rest of the season. But we should win the ACC regular season title. If we fumble that, that's really, really bad. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's the, that's the sort of stunning analysis you get on the Duke by the Numbers podcast. Not winning would be bad. Um, I want to just go ahead and get to the mailbag. Uh, we had some good questions here. I also just don't have a lot more analysis about the UNC game. We're just so much more talented and, and better than them. Uh, so I got a few questions here. I'm going to shout out the people who asked the question, then I'm going to try and dive in best I can. Uh, at go underscore Duke. So Steve on Twitter said, is Duke a better team with Keels coming off the bench? Uh, that's a good question. I saw uh, Ryan uh, at the Duke Nation on Twitter. He had retweeted, somebody found that our lineup of Roach, Griffin, Paolo Moore, Bancaro is the most efficient lineup in NCAA basketball when it's on the floor right now. Now, that's a pretty small sample size. I think at least at the time that it was posted, it was only like maybe 120 possessions, I want to say. Uh, not not like a huge number of possessions. Um, I might be wrong on that number, by the way. I just totally pulled that out of my ass. Don't hold me to that. It was a small number of possessions is the point. Um, but I do think that generally Keels probably operates best as a guy who can come in work the other team's second team. He can take a lot of the responsibility for running some secondary offense when either Roach is on the bench or if Moore is on the bench. Uh, he's very good at creating. He's probably our second best shot creator on the team. So, again, having him off the bench to just come in and, and burn fools uh, and just bully them, I do think is pretty appropriate. I also do think that, and we'll talk a little bit more about Jeremy Roach in a second, Jeremy Roach does a really good job of keeping the ball moving, feeding people. We saw in the UNC game in the last 10 minutes of the first half, the the ball got a little bit sticky at times when Roach was not the one running the offense. Uh, sometimes he was just on the bench. Sometimes he just didn't touch the ball. It, sometimes it'll just end up being Keels ISO, AJ ISO, Paolo ISO, uh, Moore ISO. Uh, Roach stirs the drink. Um, so I would prefer him to be in the starting lineup to get us moving, to get the ball moving right away. He's not a better defender than Keels, but that's okay. I, I, I want us to get a hot offensive start. We've really struggled with that this season. Um, so if we can just lean on that going forward, I think that's going to be tremendously valuable. Uh, and so the, that's a very, very long way to say yes. <laughs> I think Duke's a better team with Keels coming off the bench. That doesn't negate the incredible value that Keels brings. Keels' uh, box plus minus numbers and a lot of his analytic numbers have been better than Roach's. And I think in ACC play, maybe have been better than Moore's in spots. So I'm not trying to diss him. I just think that the role allocation works really well with him coming off the bench, with Roach starting the game. Uh, Duke Crew, at Duke underscore five to six. Said, uh, how does Duke play against zone defense? The eye test tells me that they dominate against the zone every time, but do analytics agree when Paolo and Mark are in against the zone, the defense cannot cheat up around Paolo, on Paolo around the free throw line. If they do, Mark dunks on somebody. Yeah, so I don't have those analytic numbers in front of me, but I do have two numbers that really matter, which are we're top 45 in the country in three-point percentage, and we're top 40 in the country in assist rate. I also think that, weirdly, we rebound better against the zone. <laughs> I don't know why that is, but especially for uh, offensive rebounds. Maybe it's just 
or defensive rebounds, pardon. Maybe it's because teams don't know quite as well how to get in position to box out uh, against a zone because it's not a man-to-man coverage. If it's man-to-man, you just throw your body against the guy that was guarding you. Um, or, or, yeah, right, like you try to get around like that person. But zone can sometimes maybe throw a little bit of a, a wrinkle into that mix. Uh, I don't know what the deal is there, and that's also – I don't have numbers for that. That's just a hunch. We've not seen much zone – I think because teams correctly know that it's a bad idea. (laughs) Uh, I think that two things that work against a lot of teams that will not work against Duke are zone and full court press. Because we're too good at passing. We're too good in transition. We're too good in the seams. We have too many guys who can handle the ball uh, effectively. Even if we turn it over a little bit more than we should, we do have like five guys who can dribble drive uh, with, you know, pretty damn good efficiency in in my humble estimation. I mean, like Roach is probably fifth on the team at it, you know, and, and Roach can, as he showed at the end of the UNC game, he can get into the paint. He can unleash a couple of little floaters. So I don't know why teams would zone other than the reason that UNC zoned against us, which was to protect Baycott, uh, to try to not commit fouls, uh, to try to just not let us just run rough shot over them. Um, but then we just immediately, like you said, we get it to Paolo at the elbow, Mark at the dunker spot, shooters on the outside. We can throw Joey Baker in, have him hit threes against the zone. He'd love to play against the zone. So, yeah, I think we play great against the zone, even without the analytical numbers in front of me. Uh, and again, full court press, a bad idea for similar reasons. Now, half court press, we have struggled against a little bit when they put a lot of ball pressure against our guards far from the three-point line just to, like, you know, try to cut off the, the head of the snake a little bit and and frustrate us at the point of attack. I do think that that has been fairly effective and has certainly drawn a lot of turnovers from people like Roach, Keels, Moore, even Paolo. Um, but in full court, there's just too much room to run. There's too much room for us to pass. There uh, are too many opportunities once we get into the half court. If you were playing full court defense, you're not going to get to set up in enough time. Like, we'll just score. So, uh, yeah, zone bad for them, good for us. Uh, Another question about zone, but on the flip side, at Luciano Locks 9, can we get some numbers on how our zone defense is played when played? I feel like we're holding on to it until needed. I I don't even know if I could find numbers for that. Uh, It's a very, very limited sample. We have done exceedingly little zoning. Uh, I kind of think that zones are dying in general. This is maybe a bit of a tangent. Uh, But, like, teams are too good at passing and shooting, even in college. And, like, even if it's a team that can't shoot – you don't need a zone to prevent teams that can't shoot from driving. You can just play a pack line like Virginia does or Texas Tech does or what have you. You know, the main reasons to zone are preventing fouls, uh, hiding an obviously bad defender who you need on the floor for offense. We certainly have zoned the last few years for this reason, <laughs> right? Like uh, to protect Marvin Bagley or to protect, uh, you know, a, a variety of the players that were huge for us on offense and not good for us on defense. Uh the one-way zone can work well is if everybody is super long and quick. It can make passing uh, very, very hard for the other team. That said, if you're super long and you're super quick, you're probably also really good at playing man-to-man defense. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that Syracuse has only one top-10 defense in the last six years and three sub-100 defenses in the last six years. Right? Some of that's personnel, but also some of it is just like 
teams know how to play a zone now. So, you know, I, I think the days of the zone are kind of sort of dying. Maybe there will be some sort of creative spot zoning, and maybe Duke will do that. But, like, I also think in the couple of times I've seen Duke unleash the zone, it has been sort of transparently panic mode on defense. Uh, hopefully the last three games uh, have shown that we see the light on defense now and don't need to do that anymore. Um, yeah, we'll see. Uh, at CJ Easterday, what have I made of Roach this season? I feel like he settled into a nice role, but I'm not sure he's a championship caliber guard. Uh, you know, I'll put it this way, CJ. In January, he had nearly a 5-1 to assist-to-turnover ratio. That's really good. Uh, he's also 17th in the ACC in conference play, at drawing fouls, and at getting to the line. That's the best on Duke in conference play. He's better at getting to the line than Paolo, than Moore, than Williams, right? He's doing a great job of taking that dribble drive and getting fouled, playing tough. Uh, I think if we're relying on Roach to do everything, then, yeah, we're probably in trouble. But, you know, Roach is a smart enough player to pick and choose his spots accordingly. He's shown a propensity for some big buckets down the stretch, even though his shot isn't great right now. I don't think he has to be the reason we win. He just has to not be the reason we lose, if that makes sense. Uh, his defense is incrementally improving. Uh, his decision-making has certainly improved over the course of the season. I like him. And again, I, I think that his impetus right now is be a quality uh, drink stirrer, a quality fifth starter on the team uh, a seasoned vet which is funny to say about a sophomore a steadying hand okay uh, at Cifo Bain according to T Ken Palm we rank 250th in adjusted tempo do you know why that is how it compares to past Duke teams and if it's going to be a concern down the road love the pod keep up the great work thank you Cifo Bain um I don't know where you saw that stat uh, from what I saw in Ken Palm they're currently 158th in tempo uh, at about 68 possessions a game uh, and I think that that's fine. You know, like for some context, in 2010, we averaged under 65 possessions a game, 229th in the country. Uh, and in 2015, we averaged almost 66 possessions a game, which was 104th that season. Like the game has generally sped up for a lot of the reasons I brought up earlier. Like more teams shoot a lot of threes than ever. This creates more transition opportunities than ever. Um in the last 11 tournaments, I've only seen two teams win it all that were top 100 in tempo. And we've seen four teams win that were sub 200 in tempo. So really, I, I think that us not going super fast is probably fine. Um, really, offensive teams do tend to want to run, and they probably should, because you can just overwhelm the other team. right? Like uh, Especially if you don't think defense is necessarily where you hang your hat. Uh, unless you're like doing pressure defense, full court press, and you're trying to push tempo that way. But most title teams just aren't full court press teams all the time, generally speaking. But like generally, if you're less talented, you slow the tempo because fewer possessions is good for you, right? And like, here's what I mean by that: like, if uh, if a super talented offensive uh, offensive team scores like uh, 1.2 points per possession, right? Let's let's say that that's what a really good offense might average. You want them playing fewer possessions because the more possessions that they play, the more likely it is that they're going to come out to their average, right? If you play a very small number of possessions, like 10 fewer possessions than they normally play, then it gives them less opportunity to, you know, regress back to what their average is, right? Does that make sense? So I, 
think that generally, like, now I should also caveat that by saying lower possession rate can also be trouble, as Virginia has certainly seen, because it can create more variance. But a lot of times, if you're a less talented team, more variance is good for you. Less variance will always be bad, because less variance means the more talented team is far more likely to win. Uh, I think our tempo is fine right now. Generally, I'd say we should maybe run a little bit more, just because, again, our talent advantage is really crazy. We probably have the most talented team in the country, or very, very close to it. Uh, but we've also had some turnover issues in conference, so I'm kind of happy letting the guys play however they're comfortable so that they're not sped up. Uh, I don't think there's anything too crazy in terms of our tempo that should affect our ability to win a national championship. Uh, at Crazy Talker, what's up, Crazy Talker? How defensive rebounding percentage has improved our performance? Uh, regular listeners of the show know that uh, generally speaking, <laughs> our defensive rebounding was very, very bad before this three-game road stretch. Uh, we did win the rebounding battle in all three games. But honestly, uh, I think even more important than our defensive rebounding has been our offensive rebounding. We are now the best in the ACC at offensive rebounding. And as we talked about before, great offensive rebounding can cancel bad defensive rebounding because the only reason rebounding even matters is to get you more field goal attempts than the other team. Uh, in the last three games, we were plus 14 in total field goal attempts, which is pretty good considering that in conference play before that, we were minus 81. <laughs> uh, we also won the offensive glass by 17 rebounds in those games, so that obviously plays a huge role in us winning the field goal attempt battle. We did not win the turnover battle over the last three games, uh, but we did manage to keep the margin pretty small, uh, which, again, is incredibly important for us. Uh, I've mentioned before that some of our best teams were bad defensive rebounding teams. It's definitely part of Duke's scheme generally to get out and go instead of swarming the glass on defense. Uh, but if we're not going to defensive rebound, we have to win the offensive glass in a big way uh, and the turnover battle ideally uh, because we have to win the field goal attempt battle to realistically uh, and consistently win these games. Uh, and Chody Cockins <laughs> is our last guy here. Oh, boy. Uh, what's up, Chody Cockins? Um, the question here is, uh, do Ken Palm preseason numbers factor into the numbers this late in the season? How are the preseason numbers calculated? Uh, we don't know the exact algorithm for Ken Palm. It's proprietary, but any preseason factors should be really minimal at this point. Preseason factors are always really important for Ken Palm or any sort of predictive analytics, uh, for the first month or two because the sample size is so small. Like, take Kentucky losing to Duke in the first game of the season. Uh, their numbers in the loss obviously weren't awesome. Now, if some mid-major team upset a high-major team on opening night, does that mean that mid-major team is better than UK because their numbers so far in the season, one game in, are better than UK's? Like, no, obviously not. And, and we would all know that, right? So, generally speaking, the predictive analytics give value to preseason assignments that that Ken Palm and his algorithm come up with uh, when they add players and they lose players, if a coach is replaced, transfers, things of this nature. It's obviously very imperfect science, and a lot of people who criticize Ken Palm usually lean on like, oh, but there's uh, this preseason stuff. Yeah, for the first month or two, but it's also important to do that. Otherwise, the numbers would be even crazier. Um so, you know, the more we can divorce ourselves from small sample size results in general, 
the better our understanding of college basketball generally will be. And that includes big wins, too. <laughs> I, I kind of want to end on this one because I think this is a really important point. While Duke is better than how we played in the Miami game or the FSU game, we also probably aren't as great as we were in the UNC game, right? We're probably somewhere in the middle. Everyone has this sort of median expected outcome. We want to be above the median more often than not. We certainly were in the Notre Dame game and the UNC game. Uh, but we will have games where we dip below. So we just shouldn't panic in either direction. I think we know roughly who our team is, how we can play, what our general median expectation should be, uh, somewhere in the middle, again, hopefully closer to how we played in the UNC game. But as long as we're generally having our median level of expected play be on the high end of the spectrum in the college landscape, which I think we are, um, then going forward, I think we can expect the Duke better. Uh, I hope this was enjoyable. Uh, the mailbag segment and everything else, uh, me not having an outline. Hopefully it didn't get too rambly. Uh, if you dug this, please subscribe. If you have questions or things you want me to talk about on any of the shows, even if I don't do a mailbag, please tweet me at Duke Better. Uh, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, or even if you're not, if you wouldn't mind, please go leave a positive review. It'll help this show pop up sooner for people searching for Duke Basketball Podcasts. Uh, very positive vibes for tomorrow, or if you're listening to this uh, on Monday, tonight. Uh, the Virginia game is a big letdown spot after a big emotional beatdown and then obviously a very important road trip to Clemson after that. Uh, we can't settle for jumpers. We can't look ahead. Uh, we've got to take care of business in order to win that ACC regular season title. I think we'll likely be very, very tired this week. Uh, so I'm very interested to see how these guys hit their energy reserves to try, hopefully, knock on wood, to win both of these next two games. I'm Russell. Until next time, and always, baby, go to hell, Carolina. What are we talking about here?